With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And then we can go into full court press. Get it? Like the news. Like the news. See, because a press can mean like the printing press, but it also is a basketball defensive scheme. You dropping Gutenberg references on me right now? Sup, nerds? It's basketball. Welcome to Horse, a basketball podcast about everything except for the wins and losses. My name is Mike Schubert, and I am joined by my trusted co-host, the Kawhi Leonard there, for some reason, to my Drake music video. It's Adam Amawala. Adam, how's it going? Look, when you're Drake, you're friends with NBA players. That's how it goes. I mean, I think it's probably a Toronto connection. That would be my guess. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. Kawhi was on the Raptors team that made Drake and many Torontonians dreams come true. So that's probably why KD has been in a Drake music video. I believe in the God's Plan music video, Antonio Brown was there dancing around in a mall with Drake. So he, he knows some people. The Kawhi Leonard thing is strange because we'll put a link to the video on the episode page of Horsesoups.com, but he was doing like a boys to men type dance and when you think of people who can dance, I think Kawhi Leonard is last place for NBA players. And in the video, he very much looks <laughs> highly confused. But yeah, it's Drake, future young thug, and Kawhi Leonard dancing in, uh, in white suits like boys to men. Very interesting stuff. I think Drake should release a song featuring Damian Lillard, who actually can rap. That would be an interesting thing to do. Bring him on. Come on. Don't be a coward, Drake. We've got lots of basketball stuff to discuss. NBA, WNBA, etc. Everything in between. But before we get to do that, we need to get centered and maybe even get clean as something that I saw. Uh, did you know there's a brand of body wash and hair care products called Dr. Teal's? No, I did not know that. I would assume that the Teal Memorial Locker Room exclusively has Dr. Teal shampoo, conditioner, body wash, etc. So... Yeah, what's the what's the shower situation in the Teal Memorial locker room? Oh, it's wonderful. It's good. It's like the Harry Potter prefects bathroom, but locker Ooh, room. I'm gonna nod as if I understand exactly what you mean. <laughs> it was that was a bath so nice that they had multiple spigots just for bubble bath stuff. So Whoa. that's the level of locker room we're talking about here. That sounds like a nice bathroom. It's good stuff. So we're gonna head there right now to talk about good stuff. You you know you know who speaking of good stuff, you know who's good people. Uh, I'll tell you who's good people, our patrons, and we actually have a number of new patrons just since the last episode, which always makes me filled with glee. So much glee. So shout out to our new patrons. We got some good names. (laughs) Kyle Lowry's Jean Shorts. Nice. Brad Rutherford. And a Potterless slash Horse crossover reference, Steamed Denver Nuggets. (laughs) I'm... A a real fan of that one. It's a really, really solid one. And not only do we have these new patrons, but we also have a new producer-level patron. Michaela loves Allison. Aww. You may think... 
That's very cute. But it gets cuter because it's an anniversary present. How sweet. That is very sweet. I love this. I think that's very, very adorable. And I'm very excited for Michaela and Allison and their love to join our existing producer-level patrons, Polly Burge, Kendra Hadley, Adam Hartwick, Salvatore Testa, Trust the Process, Siobhan Ellsbury, Shubidubidoo, Godzilla Got Busy, Steph Curry for three. Bang! He sells seashells, LeBron James, Matt Barger, NBA legend Robert Zachary, No Jazz, No Pizza, Eileen Gazash, Avatar Kiyoshi, Don't Go Chasing Taco Falls, Anna Borgeli, Mitch Chrysler, Bang! Bang! Brown Men Can Jump, Jimmy Butler for two, Long-Suffering Timberwolves fan, Roast Beef Debris, Christ Paul, Kate the Conqueror, Basketball is Life 2, and now, Michaela Loves Allison. I have to say it's very funny because uh, I, I didn't know Salvatore Testa personally, but now uh, Salvatore and I and some other folks have been collaborating with Shubes on Modern Muckraker. I think I'm allowed to disclose that. Yes, everyone, you are. You are. It's that. public info. And instinctually, when I see the name Salvatore Testa in my head, I say, trust the process. I, like, yes. It's a very Pavlovian response where as soon as I see that name, it just appears in my brain. This was a common thread when I announced Sal is one of the writers of Modern Muckraker, a podcast I'm working on that should be coming out in October. People in the comments of the Instagram and the Twitter post announcing him said that they make that same connection. And Sal replied saying that when he hears it, he envisions it as a pep talk where every (laughs) two weeks we remind Salvatore Testa, don't worry, just trust the process. Yeah, Salvatore, comma, trust the process. This is our advice to you. Exactly. Sal, all you got to do is trust the process. You know who else trusts the process of helping our show exist? (laughs) (laughs) Nicely phrased. I'm going to guess it's our sponsors. It is our sponsors, HelloFresh. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. They offer 50 menu and market items each week, including ready-to-eat salads, sandwiches, and soups. These are new things that I have not had with them yet, but that is very exciting as a needing-to-eat-on-the-go boy. So I think that they are offering foods that are even quicker is pretty sweet. But you can try a whole bunch of HelloFresh stuff. They've got quick and easy meals, 15 to 20-minute dinners, breakfast on the go, and more. They've got easy options that are perfect for your busy lifestyle. So if you're like Adam and I, where you're running around doing a million different things because your job is a shrug emoji, then HelloFresh could be for you. We've both had great experiences with it. Tasty food, easy to cook. What's not to love? I mean, now that soups are involved, this is a a game changer for me. Yeah, I would be intrigued to see what particular soups. Do they have any horse soups? (laughs) I have eaten horse before, but I've never had horse in a HelloFresh box. I have had some fantastic things, whether that's their bibimbap bowls or their quesadillas or their various taco and burger recipes. They've got a lot of different iterations of some of those mainstay style of dishes, Mm. but it's always making it feel a little bit different. So it doesn't feel like you're eating the same thing back to back. You can switch it up. Or if you find something you like, keep getting the same thing. Why not? I'm convinced you just like saying bibimbap. Bibimbap, very fun to say. What And it tastes good. Fun to eat, fun to cook, fun to say. Win, 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 win. Speaking of that, you can have a win, 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 win if you go to HelloFresh.com slash 14horse and use code 14horse for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash 14horse and use code 14horse for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. So check that out and get some tasty food right into your home and then belly. Mm. And finally, before we leave the Teal Memorial locker room, we want to thank Multitude for having us as a part of the collective. And we're very excited to announce a new Multitude member podcast from our very own Mike Schuber. I love that guy. He's so great. I love that guy too. That's awesome. We share this in common. He has a new podcast out called The Newest Olympian. If you're familiar with Mike Schubert, me, my other work of Potterless, where I read the Harry Potter books for the very first time as an adult, The Newest Olympian has a similar format 
format, but this is around the Percy Jackson and the Olympians books. So we're on a quest here to determine if Percy Jackson and the Olympians has been collectively slept on. Is this the YA series we should have been reading the whole time? So I'll be making my way through the books and then all the other spinoff material bit by bit with guests who are Percy Jackson superfans, people who've read the series before, and we're trying to see if we all should have been reading this book series the whole time. It's got all the best stuff that you love from Potterless. It's super fun and uplifting. I'm very biased, but I think it's very good, and you can already listen to it right now wherever you get your podcasts, or you can go to the newestolympian.com, and whether you're a Percy Jackson super fan or you've never read them before and you're looking for an excuse, you could use this as like a digital book club, and you could read along with the show and talk about it with people on social media and the Discord. It's fun no matter what end of the PJO spectrum you're on. Have you read those books before, or are you a newbie? I am a complete newbie. I have never read those books. In general, that's not really like a genre that I'm into. The only comment that I have based on nothing is that when that first film came out, I thought to myself, that's an awfully long title. Like Percy Jackson (laughs) and the Olympians colon the lightning thief just is Mm -hmm. a mouthful. Yep. But thankfully, it's a podcast, which is mouthful based. So it, it translates well. But yeah, check that out. It's a good show. I'm having a great time making it. And you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. The newest Olympian. And congrats on the final episode of Potterless and an amazing run. Thank you. It was a good, basically five-year run. We hit 69 million nice downloads, which is pretty cool. I mean, you have to, I feel like even if the podcast is thriving, you would have had to quit once you got to that number, right? Yeah, so it, it just worked out. The stars aligned that the day I posted that final episode, I noticed we had passed 69 million. So it was written in the stars. It's meant to be. And now we can move on to Full Court Press. Get it? Like the news? I do. Great. Let's first talk about the most basketball-y of the news, and that is the WNBA playoffs are right around the corner. When this episode comes out, the playoffs will begin that week, which is very exciting. There's lots of drama. The WNBA playoffs are incredibly dramatic because unlike the NBA playoffs, where every series is seven games, the WNBA playoff has a single elimination round. They've got best of three series, best of five series. They've got some really tight stuff, so there's lots of drama. If you like drama, that's probably why you're listening to Horse. WNBA playoffs are a great time. The bubble playoffs are hype, and I think these playoffs are going to be hype as well well because a lot of teams are very good this year and almost identically good, which is very exciting. Mm, I love me some parody. Yes, we're recording this on September 8th, and currently the Connecticut Sun are the number one team in the entire league with a 22-6 and record, which is very good. In second place are the Las Vegas Aces. They are 20-8. and eight. My beloved Seattle Storm are 20-10 and 10 in third. The Lynx in fourth are 18-9. and nine. The Mercury in fifth are 18-10, and 10. Uh, and then the there's a drop-off afterwards. So you've got the top five teams all with incredibly similar win percentages. So there's a lot of really good teams. It's going to be very competitive. Sue Bird, of course, tearing up a storm. Brianna Stewart, Jordan Canada on the storm, tearing up a storm. The aces are phenomenal. They, they have been absolutely just destroying people. And the Phoenix Mercury, also really solid. They added Skylar Diggins-Smith mm-hmm. to form a big three of Diana Taurasi and Skylar Diggins-Smith and Brittany Griner, who absolutely made mincemeat of international women in the Olympics. They have been a really formidable trio. So it's really anyone's championship this year, whereas in past years, there were kind of a couple contenders. There's five teams that are all on about equal playing field right now. And that's just so fun. You rarely get that in any sport, especially the NBA or the WNBA. So I think it's going to be a really spicy playoffs. I'm super Hmm. stoked about it. Now, if Phoenix goes on a losing streak, does that mean that the Mercury are in retrograde? Uh, They have to be, honestly. But they have won their past nine games. So 
uh, I don't know enough about astrology to know if retrograde is good or bad, but I guess they're in. Me neither. Uh, they're in their future grade, maybe? I don't know. Whatever the good Mercury thing is, they've won nine in a row, and the sun have won 10 in a row. So clearly, the celestial bodies are doing very well right now in the WNBA. I mean, we had the suns get to the finals in the NBA. It might be time for the Sun to get to the finals in the WNBA. Now, how many teams are there in the WNBA? There are 12 total teams in the WNBA. And how many make the playoffs? So here's the structure of the WNBA playoffs. The top eight teams make it. The first seed and the second seed already get two bye rounds. They are immediately in the semifinals. Wow. If you're the third seed or the fourth seed, you get a bye of the first round and you are automatically in the second round. In the first round, you have the eighth seed and the fifth seed playing each other, and then the seventh seed and the sixth seed playing each other. The winner of that goes on to play either the third or fourth, and then the winner of that goes on to play either the first or second. So pretty big advantage to being one of the top two teams. So seeding is incredibly important. And as you get through the rounds, the number of games in those rounds increases. So I'm pretty sure round one is just one game. Round two is a best of three. The semifinals are a best of five, and the finals are a best of seven, which I think is really cool that it increases with each step of it. I like that, yeah. I always do this when I play NBA 2K. I always make that the final structure because I think it's cool. As the stakes get higher, there should be more games. It's fun. Yeah, I've always felt that the NBA playoffs are too long, especially like the first mm -hmm. round does not need to be best of seven. It, it was perfectly no. fine as best of five. I don't really like any scenario in a sport where teams play a lot of games to have it come down to one game. I just think that sucks when you play, you know, 30, mm -hmm. 40, sometimes 80, 162 games in baseball. Right. Shout out baseball reference. Um, <laughs> to have it come down to one game, it's it's pretty rough. Uh, like your Yankees very well may be in a one game yeah. playoff against are, the Red Sox, yeah. which will be spicy for sure. Baseball, I think it's not as forgivable. The WNBA, you only play about 30 games or so, so right. it makes more sense. But yeah, it, it might not be the most ideal thing, but it does create so much drama in the first round, which is really fun. Totally. So No, that's, yeah, I think that'll be a lot of fun. And this actually gives us an opportunity to shout out a couple uh, questions we got from some horse ah. listeners, uh, which we like to do from time to time. And also, I discovered a treasure trove of questions that had gone to our promotions folder in Gmail. So I've been uh, Ooh, doing my best Gmail. to get through those and respond to some people who have been uh, waiting too long. And if you are one of those people, uh, we will get back to you. And apologies there. But there's one question that I found interesting. It's from a listener named Jerry. And the question says, my friend is saying that WNBA players have it easy since their ball is smaller than the men's. What should I say to change their mind? Thanks. Uh, so Shubes, do you have an answer for Jerry? This is correct in that the ball is smaller. To qualify that as having it easy, I would say that is incorrect. They have a smaller ball because generally women's hands are smaller than men's hands. Yeah, what a ridiculous argument for whoever is saying this to make. Yeah, what what they are trying to say, and I've heard people make this claim, is that when WNBA players have high shooting percentages, because the rim is the same size and doesn't get proportionally smaller, people think, oh, well, the ball is smaller, it's easier to make it. It's like they're playing with like a mini ball that you get from Six Flags. It's right. very comparable in size. For reference, the official circumference of an NBA basketball is 30 inches. The WNBA basketball is 28.5 inches. Oh yeah, huge like, like yeah, an inch and a half. So all those all those shots would be misses in the NBA. Right. So it's a ridiculous claim. It is I think just in order to make the play look clean. And if anything the WNBA really excels in the passing and the crafty layups that these women do are just so fantastic. And I don't see an issue with using a smaller ball if it allows them to 
dribble a little more easily and all of that. It's not like they're playing with a, a shorter hoop. Right. And people are always complaining of like, oh, they should lower the rims. But then those same people are like, they don't play with a big enough ball. Yeah. I would just tell this person, make some sort of joke about like, oh, wow, cool. Like, I didn't know that your worldviews are you know, about to retire because they were born in 1950. Like, whatever it is, that's just such classic, like, old guy who, like, this right. person probably doesn't even watch the NBA and they're trying to act like they're going to speak less of the WNBA. Just, I mean, just tell this person to shut up. Yes, I think, I think, Jerry, our advice for you is uh, respond to that person. I bet you're a ton of fun at parties and, and that's Yeah, happen. right. That's um, basically it. But we also had another question that I thought was interesting and it, and it ties in perfectly to what you're talking about with the WNBA playoff structure, because I think we take for granted as people who follow these sports closely that we just understand how playoff seating works. But mm -hmm. we got an email from a mom. Her name is Marisa. And the subject was championship brackets. And this is what the question said. Hi there. Here's a random question from a mom who knows nothing about playing basketball, but loves the podcast and signed her seven-year-old up for a rec basketball league. Is it common yes. to schedule the first place team to play against the last place team in the first round of playoff games? In this case, there are only four teams, so everyone makes it to the playoffs. It seems like that doesn't give the last place team much of a chance. I tried Googling, but Wikipedia gave me a million different types of playoff brackets, so I thought I'd ask the only basketball experts I know. And that is an interesting question because that's something that as sports fans, we just kind of have grown up with that being the format. But my answer to Marisa when I responded was, that's kind of the point, is that exactly. you want to reward teams that do better in the regular season by having home court advantage, uh, which in this case probably doesn't pertain if it's all in one rec center, presumably. Right. But um, yeah, that's that's the idea is that the better you do during the regular season, the more of an advantage you theoretically have against the last place team. But we had a, a bit of an exchange. And as it turns out, she was surprised to see that sometimes the games are close anyway. And, and that can be a thing that you see in a lot of sports, uh, basketball or anything, where teams sometimes play up or down to their level of competition. Yes, agreed. It is designed to try to give an advantage and reward a team for over the course of this season because you came in first place. You don't automatically win. So to make it easier for you to give you a better chance to win, we've made the playoff structure more favorable towards you. It can be like the WNBA. This also happens in the NFL where you skip entire rounds. So a couple different ways to do it. But yeah, I mean, I think the games still can be close. And sometimes with seeding, we will see this in a lot of leagues. Look at what we just described in the WNBA. These teams are all separated by one game, two games, mm -hmm. not a whole lot of stuff. And sometimes it's just the way it shakes out especially in the NBA when we had the play-in tournament, the difference between six and seven was huge because you could get eliminated even if you were the seven seed. So right. it's always nice when things are put in place to reward teams over the course of the regular season because just like you said with baseball, it sucks to play 162 games and then you lose one, so then you lose the whole thing. That yeah. kind of sucks. So to put structures in place to try to make the regular season count for something is good, especially in a professional league, so that teams don't just sit their best people until the playoffs. That is where it's the most important. Is it right. as important for a kid's rec league? Probably not. For professional sports, certainly. I mean, I don't know the rec league. Maybe it is. High stakes. High stakes seven-year-old ball, I guess. <laughs> So that concludes Full Court Press. Get it like the news. I do. Let's move on. So that actually leads very well into what we will be doing for the rest of this episode. We got some feedback from the survey, which we thought was really nice. And we realized in the offseason, this is the perfect time to do this. And we talked about doing an episode about Malice in the Palace. We're going to do that in the future. We have guests lined up and we want to make sure that that is as good as it can be. We don't want to rush that. And it's a bit more evergreen. But we figured in this time where the NBA is not about to start, we've never really done this on the show. So we thought it would be fun to give 
a history of basketball lesson that also along the way, explains some of the rules of basketball. So what we're going to do is go through the history of NBA rule changes. And for folks who are already well-versed in basketball, you will get to learn stuff because I didn't know all this stuff. Like, yeah, I know how basketball works, but I didn't know like in 1971, this rule was changed. So for folks that are already familiar with basketball, you get a history lesson. For folks that still don't know all of the terms we're talking about, even though we do our best job to try to be as welcoming as possible, you'll get to learn because we'll explain all the rules. Yay! I'm very excited about this. Yeah, so that's what we're going to be doing for the remainder of this episode. So let me take you back, Adam, to December 1891 in Springfield, Massachusetts. Let me take you specifically to a YMCA international training school now known as Springfield College in Springfield, Massachusetts. Mm, I'm told it's fun to stay at the YMCA. I've heard it's fun. There is a man there named... Dr. James Naismith. And Dr. James Naismith is instructed by his boss to create an indoor sports game to help athletes stay in shape even though it is very cold outside in the winter. They're indoors. How do we keep them active? Go ahead and invent a sport because that's 1891 and that's what you do. What was he a doctor of? Uh, he was a doctor of jumpers. <laughs> so he created what eventually became basketball. If the name Naismith sounds familiar to you or Springfield, Massachusetts, it's because the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame is in Springfield, Massachusetts, and it's named after the guy who founded it, and it's located in the place where he founded it. Though he is Canadian, but the sport was invented in America. Well, why the hell didn't Drake have Dr. James? Naismith in his video. Because he's dead. Oh, right. Sorry, sadly. Hate to, hate to burst that bubble. <laughs> I mean, you hadn't said he was dead yet. I didn't know if he was the oldest man in the world. Yeah, 130. <laughs> <laughs> Basketball keeps you young. It's life. Ball is life, right? So this sport he invented has peach baskets and a soccer style ball. And he also published 13 rules for the game. He divided his class into two teams of nine and then taught the game to the class. The objective was to throw the now basketball into the fruit baskets that were nailed to the lower railing of the gym balcony. Every time a point was scored, the game was halted because the janitor would have to get a ladder and climb up it and get the ball out. After a while, they realized we should probably just cut the bottoms out of these baskets. I wonder how long they played that way. I want to know. I need to know how many minutes. But this took place on March 11th, 1892. Here were the rules. Here are the original 13 rules of basketball. The ball may be thrown in any direction with one or both hands. Thank you for clarifying that. The ball may be batted in any direction with one or both hands. With a vicious strike. <laughs> a player cannot run with the ball. The player must throw it from the spot on which they catch it. Allowance to be made for someone who catches the ball when running at good speed. So you weren't supposed to dribble. You're just supposed to like catch and stop moving, which I feel like is a game people play in gym now where you right. do like indoor soccer, basically, but throwing a ball. I want to say I called it Nukem when yes, I played I know you're talking in about. New Jersey. Maybe that's a hyper-regional thing that only you and I know. <laughs> it very well may be. Also, what is good speed? Like, good speed is such a vague term. Very. I guess they were saying, like, you don't have to stop immediately and rupture all of your ligaments. Nukem, maybe I'm confusing with the one where it's like volleyball, but you can catch it. That might have been Nukem. I don't know. I don't anyway. Know. Number four, the ball must be held in or between the hands. The arm or body must not be used for holding it. So you have to 
catch it. You can't like lodge it in other parts of your body. Um, <laughs> no shouldering, holding, pushing, tripping, or striking in any way. The person of an opponent shall be allowed. The first infringement of this rule by any person shall count as a foul. I'm looking at you, Draymond Green. <laughs> the second shall disqualify him until the next goal is made. So there was like a penalty box. Or if there was evident intent to injure the person for the whole of the game, no substitute. So ejections. Whoa. A foul is striking the ball with the fist. Violation of rules three and four, such as described in rule five. So you couldn't punch the ball, which you still can't do. If either side makes three consecutive fouls, it shall count as a goal for the opponents. That has been changed. Three fouls in a row just equals points. Wild. A goal shall be made when the ball is thrown or batted from the grounds into the basket and stays there. If the ball rests on the edge and the opponent moves the basket, it shall count as a goal. So no goaltending. Number nine, when the ball goes out of bounds, it shall be thrown into the field and played by the person first touching it. In case of a dispute, the umpire shall throw it straight into the field. The thrower in is allowed five seconds. So this is like soccer, really. <laughs> but the five second rule was still there, as is still in basketball. If he holds it longer, it shall go to the opponent. If any side persists in delaying the game, the umpire shall call a foul on them, which still exists. Delay of games, are I think. Delay of game. There you go. 10. The Empire shall be the judge of the men. I don't like that this is only men. I'm going to say people. I mean, does that surprise you at all in the No, 1800s? zero. Absolutely zero percent. The Empire shall be the judge of the people and shall note the fouls and note the referee when three consecutive fouls have been made. 11. The referee shall be the judge of the ball and shall decide when the ball is in play, inbounds, blah, blah, blah. 12. The time shall be 15 minute halves with five minute rests in between. And 13. The side making the most goals in that time shall be declared the winner. In the case of a draw, the game May, by arrangement of the captains, be continued or play until another goal is made. So Ooh, it was sudden, sudden so originally death. it was sudden death. And you will clearly note that none of these 13 rules say that a dog cannot play basketball, which is why Airbud was allowed to play. There it's ain't so no true. rule that says a dog can't play basketball. Sudden death was uh, also like a real risk just in life in the 1800s. You might just be, you know, 22 <laughs> and that's it. Oh, gosh. Oh, I ate a berry. <laughs> Have you been to the Hall of Fame? Yes, I've been to the basketball museum a couple of times. It was more so when I was younger, though, because I had an uncle who lived in Springfield, so I went a couple of times then. I have not been in a very long time. We have talked about making a pilgrimage up there. We should do it at some point when it feels like a good time to go. I would love to go. They have an entire Michael Jordan wing in that museum. Incredible. Incredible. They actually, though, I don't know how recently you've been, but they have a thing in the Hall of Fame where you can shoot on rims from different eras. And the first one is a peach basket. So you can play with an actual basketball and shoot it into a peach basket that fortunately does, in fact, have a hole in the bottom. So you don't have to use a ladder to climb up, which I imagine would be a liability of some sort. Probably. So now, beyond the sport being invented, then the National Basketball Association came to be and was played professionally. And ever since it started, rules have been changed as early as 1947 up until as recent as, I mean, like 2018 was the last big one with the shot clock thing for offensive rebounds. So we're just going to make our way through some of these uh, major rule changes and talk about them along the way. Cool. So the National Basketball Association was founded in 1946. Rule changes didn't take long to happen. In 1947, the next year, they switched it from five fouls, having someone foul out, to six fouls, having someone foul out. Foul out means if you hit a certain number of fouls in the same game, you have been deemed to have been fouling too much, and you cannot return for the rest of the game. So originally it was five, it got upgraded to six. You must go stand in a field. <laughs> 
<laughs> but in college basketball, it is still five. The other thing they changed was that the team size originally was 12 people. Now it is down to 10. But now in the NBA, it is different where you have, I want to say you have 14 people on the active roster and then 12 people can play at a time. And then there's all sorts of things now with two A players who are on the team, but can also play in the G League and they can be on both teams at the same time kind of deal. They also expanded that for COVID. I don't know if they're going to reduce that again. It's confusing, but this is different now. In 1951, the lane was changed from six feet wide to 12 feet wide, specifically because of the dominance of the first big man, George Mikan. So the lane, if you look at a basketball court, is that painted rectangular area underneath the basket. And if you look at old photos of NBA courts, it started as very skinny and now is even wider. We'll get to something in the future, but it's even wider than 12 feet today. But the paint is an area now in which you cannot stand in there for an extended period of time, otherwise you get a three-second violation. And also during foul shots and stuff, you cannot be standing in the paint until the shot is released so you could get a rebound. So they extended this because George Mikan was getting every rebound Hella after rebounds. foul shots. Yeah, I don't even think three in the key was a thing yet, but I think it was purely because of rebounds after foul shots, unless there's some rule I'm missing here, but I was confused. And George Mikan, if I am not mistaken, played for the Minneapolis Lakers. He did, he did. He was a great, great player, and there's a basketball drill called the Mikan drill that I had to do in many of my days, where you just kind of keep catching layups and shooting them in succession. Right, and much like how the Utah Jazz, it's like why Jazz in Utah, they were originally in New Orleans, the Los Angeles Lakers were originally in Minneapolis, land of 10,000 lakes, hence Los right. Angeles Lakers. I'm sure there are lakes in Los Angeles if they haven't all dried up by now, but <laughs> it's not a place known for lakes. Right. Unless you count the tar pit as a lake. Which I don't. <laughs> In 1952, they changed the rules so that if a jump ball happened, it would take place between the person who fouled someone and the one guarding them. So a jump ball happens now if two players kind of have possession of the ball at the same time and it doesn't get resolved quickly, you will call a jump ball. There's a couple other things that'll spark a jump ball, but this rule changed it so that unlike when you start a game and you can pick whoever you want to jump it, if there is a jump ball caused by some sort of instance on the court, it's the two players involved. Now... If you have a jump ball at any point else in the basketball game, like the the replay things now can spark a jump ball, or if overtime starts, you do another jump ball, those you can still pick whoever you want. But if it's an on-court thing, it's got to be the people involved. In 1954, the 24-second shot clock was implemented, which is huge. Huge. That's arguably the biggest addition other than the three-point line, which we will get to. Right. And we talked about this long ago in an old episode of Horse when we talked about the first time America played basketball in the Berlin Olympics, I think, in 1932, 36? I don't know the exact year. But in the 30s, there was no shot clock. So the final scores of Olympic basketball games would be 30 to 8 or something because a team would just get up by a lot of points and then just play keep away. And there was no real situation to stop someone from doing this. So the shot clock was initially implemented just 24 seconds. It still is 24 seconds to this day. In college basketball, it's 30. But once you start with possession of the ball, whether that is after a team makes a shot or after a 
jump ball. You have 24 seconds to have the ball hit the rim. The ball hitting the rim will restart it. Back in the day, that used to completely restart it, but now if the opposing team grabs it, you get a fresh 24. If the same team grabs it, you get 14 seconds, and that was to speed up the game, and that has been implemented since 2018. So pretty recent, but it was a good change that everyone supported, just so that if it was like towards the end of the game, and you get an offensive rebound, it doesn't just mean game over. It incentivizes you to kind of shoot it up quickly, which makes sense because part of the 24 seconds like factoring in is to get across the court. There's a 10 second violation where you have to get across half court. And I think it may be eight seconds in the pros. It is now eight. Yeah, yeah, it's eight seconds. So that makes sense that if you're getting the ball and you're already past half court, you don't need the full 24 anymore. Right. So them adding this in the 50s was huge. It completely revolutionized the sport. Well, because the scores were so low. I mean, if you look exactly. at the early days of the NBA, you would see scores that were like, you know, 30 to 24 because it was just a lot of keep away once a team got the lead. Right. So it made the game more exciting. And you'll see with a lot of these rule changes, a lot of it is just to make the game more entertaining. That was part of the reason why they widened out the paint is so that big men didn't have just a huge huge advantage in addition to being taller than everybody. It allowed smaller players to be able to run in the lane and stuff. So now, uh, 1964, we get another recurring theme, which is player is so good at basketball, we have to change the rules. And Wilt Chamberlain absolutely dominated just absurd numbers, inhuman numbers. They look pretend when you look at his statistics. They then widen the lane from 12 feet to 16 feet. He was too good. Yeah. And that's just like forever bragging point. If you get to say, oh yeah, I'm so good at basketball that they change the rules... My God. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what, can we find a higher league for this guy? <laughs> right. In 1966, they reduced the foul limit. So a foul limit now is colloquially known as the bonus. Basically, if your team has five fouls in a quarter, or if they have two fouls within the last two minutes, it doesn't have to be a shooting foul. Any foul at all warrants free throws. So normally in basketball, you only get to shoot if you were in the act of shooting and then someone fouled you. As an apology to make it up to you, they say, here's some <laughs> two free shots where no one's allowed to guard you. If your team is in the bonus, though, the opposing team has passed the foul limit. Any foul at all gets you shots. So in 1966, they dropped it to five per quarter. It was higher before. Right. And this is still a big factor in the NBA now where mm -hmm. if a team gets into foul trouble early in the quarter, they might only be halfway through the quarter and they already are at that limit. And that means that any foul, even if it's a minuscule offense, results in free throws and that can really swing a game. Yes. And that can mean you're more timid on defense, which gives your other team more advantage to be more aggressive because you know the other team might not want to foul you. In 1966, they also added the three-second violation. So this now has an offensive and a defensive version. Basically, you cannot stay in that paint. That lane that kept getting widened is now 16 feet. You can't stay in that lane without touching another player or stepping out of the lane for three consecutive seconds. It's, again, just to try to stop big folks, whether it's from offense or defense, just standing under the basket and wreaking havoc. It's supposed to allow for more fluid play. A good rule, I think. A good rule. Good to make the game not just mucky and gross where everyone just stands close to the basket because at this point in time, there was no three-point line and that did revelations to spread the court out, which makes the game, I think, much more enjoyable. So here's an interesting one. In 1972, it said no foul shots except for shooting fouls until the team are in the penalty. So I don't know if in the past that meant everyone got to shoot after every foul. I was confused to read this. I'm honestly not sure what this rule change was. Hmm. I didn't even know that was a thing, but it feels weird that they would reduce the foul limit. Like, what is the point of a penalty if anyone was getting fouls anyway? I was kind of confused about that, but that happened in 72. There you go. And then here's another interesting one. 
1974, timeouts as time expire will not be granted. So I guess people were calling timeouts as time would expire, and they would say, no, 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 I called timeout when there was zero Mm. seconds left, which is really interesting that it took them 30 years (laughs) to say that you can't do that. It's very interesting. In 1976, they added that any player in a fight is fined $10,000 and suspended. What year was that? 1976. If you fought someone, you got fined money. Before then, I guess you just got a foul and you were told not to do that again. Well, and $10,000 is a lot of money, especially in that day and age. It is. They also added possession rules for quarters so that whoever doesn't win the tip off, they get the ball to start the next quarter and then you alternate back and forth. In a normal game, if you win the tip-off, you have gotten first quarter possession. In the second quarter, whatever team didn't win the tip-off gets it. In the third quarter, whatever team did win the tip-off gets it again. And in the fourth quarter, that losing team gets it. I'm assuming that in the past, it was just whoever had the ball last, it goes to the other team if time expires because your possession has now ended. Now the other team gets to go. So now in a game, even if you have the last shot, it is still set by whoever won the tip-off. In 1977, they adjusted the 24-second shot clock to reset back to 24 after all violations. This has been changed in that now it goes up to 14 for anything. So if there's five seconds left on the shot clock and you're on offense and you get fouled, you get the ball on the sideline, but so that you aren't hampered by having only five seconds left, you get the shot clock bumped back up to 14. The only situation in which this doesn't happen is if there's less than 14 seconds in the quarter. So that's why you will see sometimes in the game, they will say, oh, this team has a foul to give. Like they're not in the bonus quite yet. So what some teams will do is they will intentionally foul someone who's about to get an easy layup with like a second and a half left because it's better for them to say, no free shot, take the ball out on the side. Now you have a second and a half to try to do it again. And that's very hard to do. Right. And there's an important distinction to make, which is that you have to commit that foul when that person is not shooting, because that supersedes everything. Anytime you get fouled while shooting, regardless of how many fouls a team has, will result in free throws. But the idea is that you you know, grab a hold of the guy before he takes the shot. Exactly. Another interesting thing in 1977 is that they added advancement of possession. So if you call a timeout within the last two minutes of a quarter before trying to advance the ball forward, so inbounding it to your teammate who can start dribbling it up, if you call that timeout, you can take the ball out at midcourt. So if you've ever watched a basketball game and it's towards the end and another team makes a basket, you take the ball underneath the basket, you call a timeout, and then you come back from commercial break. And hey, why is that guy standing somewhere else now? <laughs> that That is this rule. You do have to do it before inbounding it. And sometimes you will see teams get too hasty where towards the end of the game, they they don't know if their coach is going to call a timeout or not. They pass the ball, they call timeout, and then, uh-oh, because you attempted to advance the ball on your own, you have to take the ball out from all the way back there, and that can really screw over some teams. Yeah, big time. I like that rule as well. I think it's very good. They also said that if you protest anything, this was the same year, any protest filed to the commissioner's office must be done within 48 hours. <laughs> yeah, much like relationships, don't bring up yeah. old shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> In 1979, a technical foul was placed on a team for illegal defense so that I think there were rules going back and forth about zone defense and defensive three in the key and all of this. They were trying to make the game have more offense. There's a whole history about illegal defense and what is valid or not. And those little rules have changed throughout the years. But all you really need to know is that they've tweaked what is and is not allowed on defense to try and 
make it more fair for offensive players. And even as recent in the 90s, there was a thing called hand checking where when a player dribbled past you, you could briefly touch them with your hand uh, and it wouldn't be called a foul, whereas now there's no more hand checking. So you'll sometimes hear people from the Jordan era say, oh, well, we had hand checking in our gear. You know, if, if there was no, if I played in the league without hand checking, I'd score 50 points a game. Uh, I don't know why they're a, a mafia member. It's no. like, no, you wouldn't LeVar Ball. <laughs> exactly. The other thing they added in 1979 was the three-point field goal. It's wild to think that it was that late that that happened. It took almost 50 years, but they finally introduced it. And it's so strange, especially because my beloved New York Knicks, they won their two championships in the 70s. It is so weird to watch those games and just see a basketball court without a three-point line on it. It's so weird. And just the whole court looks so different. And even when they first introduced it, people almost never shot them. People thought this was a gimmick. It was the equivalent of now if the NBA introduced the half-court shot and people would be like, half-court? No one can make half-court shots. All of a sudden, Steph Curry keeps hitting four-point shots and people are like, oh, maybe this is not just a gimmick. Exactly. So that's when it was first introduced. People are like, this is ridiculous. No one's going to do this. What a bunch of crap. And then eventually now it's a incredible mainstay that defines how basketball properly functions. But they added that, and that was a huge revelation that wasn't really seen later on. In the next season, they made the three-point field goal permanent. There was debate as to whether or not they would keep it around. They said after this successful test run, we're keeping it. It's going in. They also, though, outlawed jewelry to be worn during games, which, why did it take us three decades to decide that someone having earrings, necklaces, etc. could be dangerous, where hands and fingers could get caught? Wild. You know, to be honest with you, though, I, I find it interesting that that's not a rule across the board for all sports, because when you watch baseball, a lot of players will have, like, kind of, you know, big necklaces sometimes, or that sort of thing. Isn't that a real liability? Like, in tennis, it's one thing, because you're really only impacting yourself. Like, worst case scenario, you you somehow catch your ring or necklace on something. But like mm -hmm. in a sport like baseball, where there is going to be some potential for contact if someone's sliding into a base or whatever, I feel like it's potentially dangerous. And also at the very least, I would just be distracted by having it on. It's not even a matter of like whether or not somebody mm -hmm. should be allowed to express themselves. Who cares about that? Like, of course you should. But I wouldn't want a huge thing that's heavy around my neck when I'm running around. That's the only thing I think about it. But I guess with baseball, it's not as much of a safety issue because you're not in close contact as much. And usually if you are, the defender is hitting you with a glove and not necessarily their bare hand. It's the reason why in, when I was in college in Murals, we couldn't wear shorts with pockets when you play flag football because you're constantly grabbing at right. it and you could dislocate someone's finger. So... I guess it's just because there's not as much close contact, whereas basketball, soccer, you've got hands near stuff. But yeah, it's another weird thing. If you, if you watch the Knicks title runs, Willis Reed is just wearing a gold chain. Not necessarily a huge one, but it's just weird yeah. to, to see it. And even Jordan, I guess in his college career, didn't he wear like a gold chain or something some of the times he played? Or at least he wore a gold chain at the dunk contest? Yeah, yeah. I can picture him in that old Chicago uniform with a gold chain around his neck. So maybe there was some sort of exemption for the dunk contest. Because what year was this you said uh 81 82 yeah that's a good point now i i know for sure because i can picture it because i can picture everything michael jordan ever did in my brain uh, <laughs> i almost noticed he definitely was wearing a chain during that dunk contest mm -hmm. in 1981 they added the rule that players have to check in at the scorers table before entering the game which i can't believe this wasn't a rule from the jump in basketball you have to now go up to the scorers table where they keep score stats track of fouls all that kind of stuff talcum powder you know the deal all the good stuff you got to go up and say hello i would like to play basketball please i am number 
or whatever. I'm going to go in for number whoever. And the fact that this wasn't always a rule, what do people do? Just like sub in and out willy-nilly like it was hockey? Yeah, maybe like <laughs> hockey. Exactly. Yeah. Just like running substitutions, which would actually be kind of fascinating if they went back to playing that way. Right. I don't know if this meant that they always had running substitutions, but I guess at the least it was just if the ball was stopped, you could just go in. I want to know what sparked this, though. I want to know if there was a game where people secretly swapped out players without telling anybody <laughs> and it wasn't allowed. Like, I I feel like there, this is the kind of rule that you put in play after someone cheated. This is not just right. a rule you think of. <laughs> In 1984, they introduced the clear path foul. This is one that can be confusing. Basically, if you have a player who's about to go on a fast break, they've gotten the ball after a steal or a block or a turnover or whatever, and they are dribbling towards their basket, no one else is in front of them, they are defined to have a clear path. And if someone fouls that player in that journey and no one else is in front of them, that's considered unfair. It's a cheap move if you kind of grab someone's arm or leg or whatever. You weren't in position to actually defend it. So if you foul them, that's not fair. So now what happens is that is a technical foul. And when this was implemented in 84, you got two free throws and the ball is awarded to that team. I think that is still the rule to this day. Two shots and then you also get the ball back. I would prefer if it were one free throw and the ball back, but I do like this rule a lot because that was always very frustrating when, especially early in the quarter, when a team has not reached that bonus, so they have not gotten above five fouls, that you have basically a wide open dunk or layup and somebody just grabs you and then you have to take the ball out of bounds. Like it would right. have for sure been two points. So it's kind of crappy that that wasn't always the case, but I think that's a very good rule. Yes, I think it makes sense. And I think it was to disincentivize exactly what you've just described. Now, here's one that is not as much fun. In 1991, if bleeding is spotted during the game, the game stops in order to stop the wound. The reason that this rule exists is because Magic Johnson had HIV. And that is the reason for this rule. And that sucks. But also, that was the health situation in 1991. They even still do it to this day, which they probably don't need to do anymore. Well, you don't want blood on the court. Right, you don't want blood on the court. But this isn't a rule that was shaped around, you don't want blood on the court. This is a rule shaped around Magic Johnson had HIV. It's it's just one of those like, oh, wow, that's why they made that rule moments. Right. But that's interesting because 1991, I believe, is before when Magic announced that. Like, my understanding of it is that once Magic Johnson announced that he had HIV, he retired from the sport. He later returned. Mm -hmm. And that was a whole issue where players like noted asshole Carl Malone, mm -hmm. you know, didn't want to be on the court with him. But that's that's very interesting, the, the timing of that. I wonder if it had more to do with, like, the general hysteria around HIV and AIDS in general and didn't directly relate to Magic, but that's that's interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's, so Magic Johnson gave that speech in November of 1991. Mm -hmm. The NBA season in 1991 started on November 1st. So he announced it six days later. Maybe it was something where they talked about it during the offseason. Maybe it was independent, like you're saying. But yeah, that is the reason behind the rule. And yes, Magic retired. He eventually came back. And Carmelo sucks. If you learned anything from this history lesson, Carmelo is a terrible person. Yep. In 1992, they adjusted the 24-second shot clock so that it only reset if you hit the rim, not the backboard. So at any time 
before. If you hit the backboard, the shot clock would reset. I think this is fair, just because the backboard is pretty big. It would be kind of easy to intentionally throw the ball off the backboard and get it right. back to you, especially if you're really close to the basket. I am surprised that it took until 1992 for this to be a rule, though. I can't imagine watching a game in the 80s. Yeah, it's weird to imagine like watching Jordan's first championship and there could be a moment in the NBA finals where the ball hits off the backboard, the Bulls get it, and then it resets to 24. It's wild. Super wild. In This is an interesting one. In 1994, they shortened the three-point line. So they moved it in a little bit so that people would shoot more of them. And you might think this is gimmicky, but it worked. People didn't shoot a whole lot of threes. When people think of the classic three-point shooters from back in the day, everyone's first thought, Larry Bird. Always. He's a big three-pointer guy. Do you have any idea how many three-pointers per game Larry Bird shot for his career? Shot or made? Attempted per game. And for reference, his first year of playing was 1979, which is the first year the three-point line existed. So he was fully there. Well, based on how you've set up this question, I'm guessing it's less than what you would think. So I'm going to guess like, you know, six attempts per game or something. 1.9. That's unbelievable. His career average was 1.9. He never averaged more than 3.1 attempts per game in a season. So Larry Bird, historically, three-point legend, didn't shoot more than three a game. You know who wow. shoots more than three a game? Everyone now. <laughs> I mean, for goodness sakes, I feel like most people shoot more than three every two minutes. Right. We will probably at some point, we should do an entire that actually happened just about this three-point line shortening because it's so interesting because it's very weird to look at some of the three-point stats, especially by percentages now. And all of the stuff now is very current, very current. And then you'll be like, how is Del Curry so good in 1994? Oh, it's because <laughs> they moved the three-point right. line in for three years. So. They shortened it. People started shooting them way more often. And then it got to a point where people were too good. People were shooting ludicrously high percentages. That's how people like Steve Kerr still have the record for highest three-point shooting percentages across a career because he thrived. His prime was during that time. So then in 1997, they moved it back. To where it originally was? Yes, moved it back to his original distance, but people still kept shooting it at a similar frequency because it just had become part of the game. So this gimmick worked to perfection, and I'm so glad they did it. It's a weird mark on NBA history, but it ultimately made a good thing, which was people started shooting them more frequently. Right. And I feel like now, if there's any momentum towards any direction, it's definitely moving it back again because of how right. good people have gotten to shooting threes. Right. And I think what they should do, instead of moving it back, if you look at an NBA court now, you will see, and even with a WNBA court, it still happens like this, because the WNBA three-point line is shorter. I think it's the, the distance of college men's or, mm -hmm. or about that distance. Not to mention the ball is smaller. <laughs> if you look at a three-point court now, so that the three-point line does not go out of bounds, it takes a sharp turn and then flattens out in the corner. This is why you'll hear about the thing, the corner three. The corner three is closer to the basket than the other three-point distances. So there is a point where you aren't 30 feet away or whatever, you're 20-something feet away, and if you had taken a shot at that distance from the middle of the court, you're actually in two-point range. Right. The farthest three you can shoot is from the top of the key. Exactly. So 
what I think the better solution as opposed to moving the three-point line back is you should widen the whole court so that every three-pointer, no matter what location you are shooting on the court, every three-pointer is the same distance. That's very interesting. I think that solves it. A lot of when people say there's too many threes now is because you'll have people who can only make corner threes. Someone like a P.J. Tucker, who isn't necessarily a good three-point shooter, but is a pretty good corner three-point shooter because it's shorter. Let me pull up the distances just to give someone a frame of reference. The NBA three-point line at its farthest point is 23 feet and 9 inches away from the basket, but at its closest point in the corners is 22 feet. So that's pretty substantial. I don't know, though. I mean, I feel like people have such good range now that it's surprising to me that two feet would make that much of a difference. I, I It might not sound that much, but if you and I went on a court and we were shooting threes and then we were shooting threes from one foot and nine inches back... I think the percentages would be wildly different. And we could do field research here, but... I think I smell a uh, Patreon post coming up. (laughs) Ooh, that could be a Patreon bonus thing. But yeah, I know for me personally, I'm not a very good three-point shooter. I can shoot them like right up on the line. If you told me to step a foot and nine inches back, I would be absolutely horrendous. Hmm. So maybe for a pro athlete, it's not as much, but I think it's more of just... It's not that pro athletes aren't adept at shooting them at the full distance. It's just that much easier when you get almost two feet of leeway. So that is my harebrained scheme of the way to fix it, as opposed to what people are saying, add a four-point line or move it back. Because if you move it back, it's only going to make the corner three more obnoxious and a bigger percentage increase of closeness. As much as the idea of the (laughs) four-point three, that's a funny way to say it. (laughs) As much as the idea of the four-point shot is kind of intriguing to me, it would make the end of blowouts so unbearable to watch. Right. I, d- I don't think you should have a four-point play. I think you should introduce that half-court heaves or anything with time expiring shouldn't count as a missed shot. Because you'll see now in the NBA, some players will intentionally not shoot a buzzer beater from really far away because they don't want to hurt their shooting percentages because it counts as a miss. But it should be like a foul where if you shoot a shot and you get fouled, if you make it, it counts as a made basket. If you miss it, they say, no worries, we're not going to count that as a missed shot because it wasn't fair. I think a time expiring shot and even if you say from beyond half court i think that should not count as a missed shot so if you make it you get credit for it but if you miss it it doesn't count against your percentage exactly they should do that because then we get more half court shots half court shots are so fun they are fun counterpoint maybe don't care so much about your percentages and just shoot the damn ball unfortunately people's contracts will be valued by their shooting percentages. That's true. That's a fair point. The difference between a 39% three-point shooter and a 40% three-point shooter can be literal millions of dollars per year. So I I think let's incentivize people to just chuck it because it's fun. I agree. And I don't know if you were like this, but especially in leagues where they didn't keep track of any stats, I always wanted to be that person. I fought to be the person the ball was inbounded to where I could launch some wild shot. I don't know that I ever made one from extremely far. I think I made like a half court shot at one point, but it was, it's very satisfying. I made one half court shot once. I think it was at the end of the third quarter. So it was still a buzzer beater, but it wasn't a huge one. I did make a buzzer beater once in the fourth quarter, but we were already losing by 20. So it didn't matter, but (laughs) there was a game that was actually close and there was half a second left and I got the ball and I just chucked it from half court and I made it. And I just, you just feel so cool. You run back to your team huddle and your bench is going wild and your coach is like, nice, like three free points we weren't expecting. Yeah. <laughs>
So the other thing added in 1997 was the restricted area, which is an area in which you cannot take a charge. A charge is where a player will stay motionless, and if an offensive player runs into them, that is an offensive foul, and it's a turnover, the defense gets the ball. Now what they implemented for safety purposes is there's a little curved area. It's a little semicircle. It looks like a very tiny three-point line that extends out from around the basket, and you can't take a charge under that area. It was basically to stop people from just chilling under there and getting dunked on and then it being a foul, which is just an unsafe maneuver because if someone goes up for a dunk and you're standing there and they knock you over, they could land on you and then roll your ankle and that's just dangerous. Or you could undercut them and they could get seriously injured. Right. So purely a safety move now. Very much a good improvement in my estimation, although it makes it tough for the referees to call exactly where someone was standing. But as I'm sure we'll get to, replay helps with that. Exactly. In 2001, they changed that 10 second violation to eight seconds. So once you inbound the ball, you have to get past half court in eight seconds now. Otherwise, it's a turnover. In 2002, they added instant replay for last second plays. So just for stuff as the games were ending to make sure you didn't mess up game winners, We will get into replay soon. From 2007 to 2015, every single year except for the 2010 season, they expanded the situations in which replays could be used. So this would be just a buzzer beater situation to make sure you shot it before the time went out in the fourth quarter to any quarter to, you know, they just kept adding little by little. Right. And then eventually they added the challenge play, I think in 2019, to where once a game, a coach could make a challenge. Right. And if you're, I don't think you get to, do you keep, if you you keep the challenge if you're right? Yes. You keep the challenge if you're right. If you're wrong, it just counts as a timeout. Right. And here's the thing. I I think if you are a sports fan, you should be pro replay. Now, let me qualify that by saying, I don't think that we need to be replaying balls and strikes. I don't think that we need to be replaying every foul because anything that is ultimately up to someone's discretion, it's hard to review. However, for things like, did someone release the ball before time expired or was someone safe or out? You want the right answer. Like you want justice if you're a sports fan. And it's not satisfying, I think, as a fan or as a player, if you win because someone got a call wrong. Right. So I feel like it's definitely a good thing for basketball and for sports in general. And this was based on a couple incidents that happened. One involved Baron Davis. Uh, there, another famous one involved Reggie Miller hitting a three against the Nets, um, which I just looked up and that's in 2002. I will try to find the videos for both of those and we'll put those on the website. But uh, yeah, I mean, you just want justice to be done. It's not fun to lose on that and it's not that fun to win on it either. Yeah. And I understand from a viewer's perspective that the replays now can really drag a game out. I think frustrations should not be pointed towards replay existing, but replay taking so long. I think there should be a faster process behind it. And I get they don't want to mess up the call, but yeah, I agree with you. A game taking a little bit longer to finish, annoying. Losing a game because of a messed up thing that you could have easily double checked, Mm -hmm. way worse. So they expanded it every single year. They then introduced the challenge play. In 2017, they reduced the number of timeouts that you could have. And then in 2018, they made that change where the shot clock resets to 14 after an offensive rebound instead of the full 24. And the only other thing is for the next season, this is a more subjective rule, but I think a good one. They've changed the rule to where offensive players recently have been doing things where they kind of jump into defenders on purpose and take unnatural shooting motions so that they will make contact with a defender and that'll count as a shooting foul. Very prolifically done by folks like James Harden, Chris Paul, the flopping basically that people get frustrated with. Originated by Reggie Miller. Mm, who I despise. <laughs> but they are trying to make that not a thing going forward. So basically, if you take an unnatural shooting motion and you make contact, you're either not going to be called a foul because they're just going to say, 
that wasn't a foul, you were acting, or if it is so egregious that you make unnecessary contact with the defender in the process, it could actually be an offensive foul. So I think this is a good change. And overall, for all of this stuff, like what we can really learn about most of these rule changes is that the NBA and the WNBA, all of basketball, does a very good job of trying to adapt the game to make it more enjoyable and more fair and modern with the times. And I appreciate that we're not in this situation where we're locked into these archaic rules. They continue to adjust it and make it make sense. I think that's really good. And I think some of the stuff in the past, when you're making rule changes because players are too good, that's not great. And mm -hmm. I know in the past, in college, there's a lot of bad rules. Like there was no dunking. And that was because like a lot of the very athletic players who usually weren't white were dunking. Mm -hmm. Like that could have racist connotations and they changed the foul shot rules and stuff like because of people i think that has been left in the past and now when a rule change happens it's for either the safety of a player or for the interest of this sport right and i appreciate that basketball across all its leagues is really trying to stay on top of that it's just nice yeah i agree and i i would say the one other thing to put in that category of like not so good rule changes for not so good reasons is something that we're going to discuss when we talk about malice in the palace which yes. is that after that incident when there was a lot of talk of like oh you know this quote unquote thug mentality which is a very mm -hmm. which is very coded language super coded. Uh, not not particularly thinly veiled either um you know it's ruining the league and this and that they implemented a dress code which had a lot to do with that exact incident and Allen Iverson frankly right oh 100% which required people to dress a certain way on the sidelines and uh again we'll talk about that more when we do that episode but uh not not my favorite rule right as far as the logistical rules of the sport mm -hmm. usually now for the most part good intentions Unfortunately, around the league, there have been some stuff that isn't so great that included, but we'll talk about it in the future. But yeah, that was our Basketball 101 history lesson slash also explaining some of the rules. If you don't understand all of the uh, the terms, let us let us know if this was helpful or not. Yeah. We got some feedback where people said that, they, that still some of the things don't make sense. So we thought this would be like a good little catch you up to speed type deal. Totally. But still fun for folks who know the rules. Yeah, very much so. One thing that we didn't mention today, but I believe you and Eric covered on a previous previous episode of Horace was when they changed the ball. Right. And people did not enjoy it. And it was one of those times where like, why do we need new Coke? Like people like Coke the way it is. <laughs> Can we keep it that way and not mess? Like we don't need new Campbell's tomato soup. It's already a good soup. Let's not mess with it. <laughs> yes. If you take away anything from this, aside from Carmel and being a bad person, it's that we shouldn't mess with the formula of Campbell's soup made in New Jersey, the home state of me and Adam. <laughs> I mean, I claim Illinois. I think you know that. <laughs> kind of for you. Definitely yeah. for me. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Horse Horses, hosted by Adam Amawala and Mike Schubert. Our editor is Misha Stanton. The music is by Bettina Campomanes. The art is by Allison Wakeman. The social media is run by Mike Schubert, and the website is by Kelly Schubert. Thank you to our producer-level patrons, Polly Burge, Kendra Hadley, Adam Hartwig, Salvatore Testa. We highly recommend that you trust the process. Mm -hmm. Siobhan Ellsbury, Shooby Dooby Doo, Godzilla Got Busy, Steph Curry for three. Bang! That was like an NBA jam bang. That was really good. I like yeah, that yeah. one. He sells seashells, Laurent James, Matt Barger, NBA legend Robert Sacri, No Jazz, No Pizza, Eileen Gazesh, Avatar Kyoshi, Doka Chasing Taco Falls, Anna Borjali, Mitch Chrysler, Bang, Bang, Brown Men Can Jump, Jimmy Butler 4-2, Long Suffering Timberwolves fan, Roast Beef Debris, Christ Paul, Cade the Conqueror, Basketball is Life 2, and Michaela Loves Allison. Very sweet. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Horse Hoops and on Twitter at Horse underscore Hoops because Horse Hoops was too big, so they had to extend the paint of Twitter 
to 16 feet and and kick them out of the social media platform. Right, to accommodate the ample hooves. Exactly, you, and you needed to widen it by putting in the underscore. You had to widen out the Twitter handle. That's why it's that horse underscore. so <laughs> much sense now. Go to our website, horsehoops.com, for some of the things we talked about today, including very controversial buzzer beaters and Kawhi Leonard, for some reason, being in Drake's music video. If you want to support the show, you can do so on Patreon. We can say your name in the credits. We can send you a sticker. We can send you a jersey. You'll get bonus audio. You'll get bonus text. You get access to everything we've ever done over the many years of making horse. You get access to it all instantly. So that's pretty cool. And that lives at patreon.com slash horsehoops. We've also got merch. We've got subnerds. It's basketball shirts. And you can get digital merch. Like, you can download our theme song as your ringtone. You can watch a video replay of a past digital live show that we've done if you go to multitude.productions slash merch. But we're going to close out this episode by putting our hands in the middle, saying something in the count of three. But what, 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 uh, could we, could we, I don't know if you have a, a big stake in it. I, I would love to wish my beloved Seattle Storm good luck in the WNBA playoffs. I'm I'm on board with that. So how, how shall we say that? Uh, I think we just say go Storm, go Sue Bird on the count of three. <laughs> All right. Can we do a bird noise after? Yes. We'll say go Storm and then we'll make bird noises afterwards. Okay. Agreed. Okay. One, two, three. Go Storm! I went more of like a crow, I guess. Yeah, you were like a crow, like a seagull. I went with like (laughs) soothing little bird. Maybe we could get an owl like, (laughs) except I just had a like Will Smith. (laughs) 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 Yes, yes, (laughs) y'all. 